You'll find the text this morning in Joshua chapter number 4. You want to turn with me to Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to try not to let this bother me. Uh, I feel more like Garth Brooks than I do Kevin Brooks. Uh, but I do have friends in low places. Uh, some of them are here this morning. Um, and sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Amen. And, uh, but, uh, it's so good to be here. I want to echo what brother Scotty, uh, said last Sunday. I'm thankful for the opportunity, uh, for our pastor giving me, uh, this time to come and share with you from God's word today. Thankful for, uh, some friends and family, uh, being here in the service today. And, uh, my prayer is that in everything that's said and done, that God is going to get all the glory. Uh, that's my heart. Uh, Joshua chapter 4, there are 24 verses in the chapter, and I feel compelled to read uh, all 24 verses, if you'll just be patient with me, and then we'll give you what's on my heart this morning. Joshua chapter 4, and it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, take you 12 men out of the people, out of every tribe of man. And command ye them, saying, Take ye hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. And ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean you by these stones? Then you shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there unto this day. For the priests which bear the Ark stood in the midst of Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people. According to all that Moses commanded, Joshua and the people hasted and passed over. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over that the Ark of the Lord passed over and the priests in the presence of the people. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses spake unto them. About 40,000 prepared for war passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Command the priest that bear the ark of the testimony that they come up out of Jordan. And Joshua therefore commanded the priest, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up unto the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned unto their place. 
and flowed over all his banks as they did before. And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. And the grass will wither, and the flower of the field will fade away, but the word of God will endure forever. Our pastor has been leading us into a new church year using the theme of beginning well. Uh, Two Sundays ago, he preached from Joshua chapter 1 and preached on beginning well with a promise. Last Sunday morning, I thought Brother Scotty Tarvin did an outstanding job of taking us into Joshua 3 and preaching on beginning well with obedience. It is my assignment this morning to look into Joshua chapter 4 and preach to our hearts about beginning well with a testimony. And I like the theme of beginning well. Because if you're going to embark on a journey and your goal is to reach a desired and a specific destination, it is vitally important to the success of your endeavor that you begin well. You need to know where you are. You need to have a good idea of where you're going. And you certainly need to have a good understanding on how to get there. My wife will readily affirm Uh, today that I am directionally challenged. If you need to know directions on how to get there, don't see me. You need to find somebody else. Uh, True story, Uh, several years ago, my wife and I were with my older brother and his wife. We were in Birmingham at a Toys R Us and we were shopping and a lady approached our vehicle and she asked for directions on how to get somewhere in Birmingham. And my immediate response was, is, ma'am, I can't help you. I'm not that familiar with Huntsville. (laughs) I didn't even know where I was at. Uh, On a regular basis, as I travel around with my job and I'm in a rural area trying to find an an address in an obscure location to deliver some things, uh, I need my phone to get me there and I need my phone to get me back. And Jane Ellen will call me and she will want to talk and we have a common conversation where I tell her, I'll say, Jane Ellen, I've got to call you back when I get on a main road because I need my phone. And so as we think about the will of God and we think about getting to the promised land, we need to ask ourselves these questions. Where am I? Do I have any idea where I'm going? And if I do have an idea of where I'm going, do I have any idea and is there any certainty that I know how to get there? Because whether you know this or not, you're not going to wake up one day and have accidentally arrived in the promised land. You're not going to stumble into Canaan. You're not going to wake up one day and say, huh, I never thought I'd find myself in the will of God. If we are ever going to get to where God wants us to be, if I as an individual 
Or we collectively as a body of Christ are ever going to get to where we need to be in our relationship with God. We will get there on purpose. It will be a trip of intention. You will have to decide that that is where you want to be. And as we think about those things and as we talk about this, the book of Joshua is the ideal platform from which to have this conversation. Because the people of God are on a definite journey. Joshua and Caleb especially know exactly where it is that they want to go. They want to go to Canaan. Joshua and Caleb have viewed that land. They have tasted of its fruit. They know what it looks like. They know what it tastes like. They know what it smells like. And it is in Joshua's heart to be in the land of promise. It had been 40 years earlier from this text that Moses had sent 12 spies to view out the land of Canaan. They spent 40 days in the land of Canaan looking at it. All 12 spies came back and all in unison and all in agreement said it's exactly like God said it was. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. There are fruit growing on the vine there. It is, it is exactly the way God said it was. But 10 of those spies says, but we are not able to take the land. The cities are walled there. There are giants in the land. There are all kinds of ites over there. There's Jebusites and Canaanites and Amorites. And we are not able to take that land. And those ten spies, in reality, were not making an, an indictment against, they, against what they perceived to be the inability of the people. Those ten spies, in reality, were making an indictment against what they perceived to be the inability of their God. But Caleb stilled the people. And Caleb said, without hesitation, everybody be quiet. We are well able to take the land. We must go at once and possess it. And in reality, Caleb was not making a confession of what he perceived to be the ability of those people. Caleb was making a profession of what he perceived to be the ability of his God. And can I say this morning without hesitation, I stand with Caleb. In 2023, in spite of all the darkness, in spite of all the sin, in spite of all the obstacles, our God is still able to bring his people into the promised land. He is able. And so Joshua and Caleb wanted to go to the land of promise. It was in their heart to be there. And Scotty did a great job of bringing us through. We walked across on dry ground and we got across Jordan. But in Joshua chapter 4, God instructs Joshua to do something. He says, I want you to take 12 men, go into the Jordan River, take 12 stones out of the Jordan River. When you get to the Canaan side of the Jordan River at Gilgal, I want you to take these 12 stones you take out of Jordan and erect a memorial. So that you will not forget what God has done for you in this day. A testimony. And so as you read through the 24 verses of Joshua chapter 4, really the, the theme is testimony. 
There is something taking place here in Joshua chapter 4 to serve as a reminder. And so I think this morning it would, I, I, I can't preach this chapter and not preach to you about the stones that testify of Jordan's crossing because they're there. But as I read through the 24 verses of Joshua chapter 4, and even as I read through them this morning, I don't know if you saw it or not, but there are not only stones that testify of Jordan's crossing, but in Joshua chapter 4, there are shadows that testify of Jesus Christ. Because everything that God has done, everything that God is doing, and everything that God will ever do will culminate in the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. He has never been separated from history. Because history is his story. It does not matter whether you look through the lens of the New Testament or you look through the lens of the Old Testament. It's kind of like the viewfinder. Does anybody remember that toy, the viewfinder? Some of y'all older folks know what I'm talking about. That little red device where you took that little cardboard disc and you put that little cardboard disc in that red device and it did not matter whether you looked through the left lens or the right lens, you saw the same picture. Did y'all know that's how God's orchestrated the Bible? It does not matter whether you look through the Old Testament or you look through the New Testament. God intends for you to see the exact same picture and that is Jesus Christ. So in Joshua chapter 4, there are shadows that testify of Jesus. Some of y'all may not have seen them. And sometimes the reason you can't see the shadow is because not, there's not any sunlight. So I want to shine some sunlight on Joshua chapter 4 so we can see the shadows. Number one, in Joshua 4 verse 10, we see a shadow of mediation in the priests that bear the ark. There is a shadow and a picture of Christ in those priests as they carried that ark into the banks and the, and the waters of that river Jordan. Who are these priests? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 5, these priests are men who were taken from among men. They were ordained for this purpose, to serve the people in things pertaining to God, especially in the offering of gifts and sacrifices. The priest's role in the Old Covenant was to serve in the office of mediation. They mediated between men and God, especially when it came to the offering of sacrifices. People did not bring their own sacrifices to God. They brought those sacrifices to the priest. And then that priest brought those sacrifices to God to make an atonement for the sins of the people. So they served in the office of mediation. But the writer of Hebrews tells us this, that, that Jesus Christ now serves under this new covenant and this new testament as a better mediator. Hebrews chapter, chapter 8, he is the mediator of a better testament. Hebrews chapter 9, he is a mediator of a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 12, he is the mediator of a better testament. His blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel, the writer of Hebrews says. His, his mediation serves as a mediation of better promises than that Old Testament had. He is our high priest. Now, what did these priests do in Joshua 4? 
These priests in Joshua chapter 4, the Bible says God instructed these priests that when they, were, they, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they were to walk up to the Jordan River and they were to put their feet in the, in the River Jordan. And the Bible says when they put their feet in that River Jordan and they bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the Bible says those waters began to part so the people could walk through on dry ground. They stood in the Jordan. That's where they were at. How long they stay there? Well, don't you love your Bible? The Bible says in Joshua 4 verse 10, they stayed there until everything was finished. Can I rephrase that? I don't mean to rephrase. I don't, I'm, this, I'm, they stayed there until it is finished. Don't y'all like that? These priests bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and when they got in the Jordan, that little suffix, Dan, means judgment. At the time those priests stood in the, in the Jordan River, it was overflowing at its banks. In essence, you could say that when these priests stood in that Jordan River that day, the judgment was roaring. It was overflowing at its banks. The judgment of God was flowing down that river Jordan. But when those priests stood in the Jordan River, the Bible says that judgment parted, allowing the people to walk through. Can I say this morning, we have a better high priest who stood in the judgment on our behalf. And when our priest stood in the judgment on our behalf, God parted those waters and allowed people like me and you to walk through. In that old covenant, the priest brought sacrifices unto God. Under the new covenant, our high priest has become our sacrifice unto God. And what did he do? What did he do as our high priest? He became our burnt offering. He absorbed the judgment of God on the behalf of Kevin Brooks. Hallelujah. He has absorbed all of the judgment of God. How long did he stay there, preacher? He stayed there until it was finished. He consumed and he drank every drop of the judgment of God. There ain't none left for me. Stick a fork in me. I'm done. There's none left. That burnt offering is an amazing thing because when the old covenant, they would offer that burnt offering... They would set that thing on fire, and the fire would consume that burnt offering. I was reminded that just this morning when I was sitting on the pew. Do y'all remember in 1 Kings 17 when Elijah was having the face off of the prophets of Baal at Carmel? Do you remember what he did? He said, we're going to have a showdown. Get two bullocks. Give one bullock to the prophets of Baal. I'll take one bullock. We'll kill our sacrifice. We'll build our altar. And we'll pray to our God. And we'll pray for our gods to send down fire to consume the offering. And those prophets of Baal prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and nothing happened. And Elijah began to mock them. Maybe your God's going on a trip. Maybe he's going on a journey. You don't know where he's at. And Elijah took his bullock. And he sacrificed it. And it's interesting because in 1 Kings 17, the Bible says he took 12 stones 
And he took those 12 stones and built an altar. And he commanded the servants to go get barrels of water and pour water on the wood around that altar and pour water on the sacrifice. And not just do it one time, but do it twice. So that it was saturated until the point the Bible says that water was running around the sacrifice that, that Elijah had built. And Elijah prayed unto his God. And y'all remember what God did? God rained fire down from heaven. And when the fire came down from heaven, it consumed the bullock, it consumed the wood, it consumed the stones, it consumed the water, it consumed everything that was on that altar that, that, that Elijah had constructed. The fire of God's wrath and the fire of God's judgment came down and consumed the sacrifice. But can I tell you, we've got a better sacrifice. We have got a better high priest. Because when Jesus Christ came along thousands of years later and he hung there between heaven and earth and he stretched out his hands and he, he stood there in our Jordan River on our behalf, the, the fire did not consume the sacrifice. The sacrifice consumed the fire. Our high priest stands right now and he says to all that will come, it is finished. Can I say to any sinner this morning that's not a believer in Christ, everything that is necessary for you to be saved has already been done. You don't have to do anything. The only thing you need to do is believe what God has done on your behalf in Jesus and you will be saved by your high priest. We have a better high priest. The shadow of mediation but there's not just a shadow of mediation there is a shadow of propitiation because the priests did not go through that jordan river by themselves they carried the ark of the covenant of the lord i hesitate to preach right here because if there's anything indiana jones taught me is it don't look at the ark <laughs> so if i start melting like candle wax just close your eyes you'll be okay but Brother Scotty reminded us in that ark there is the tablets of stone with the commandments. There's the golden bowl of manna. There's Aaron's rod that budded. But I'm not necessarily interested in the box. I'm interested in the lid. Because the lid is what was called the mercy seat. That mercy seat played a very important role under that old covenant. Where was the most holy place in Israel? Jerusalem. Where was the most holy place in Jerusalem? The temple. Where was the most holy place in the temple? And the holy of holies that housed the ark of the covenant that contained on its lid the mercy seat. On that mercy seat, the lid of that ark, of that box, was a, a golden lid. And on each side of that lid, there were two cherubs. Those two cherubs faced each other with their wings outstretched. And they, they faced each other and they looked down upon that mercy seat. And when they looked down upon that mercy seat, really in essence, they were looking down on the tables of testimony, looking down on the golden bowl of manna, and looking down on Aaron's rod that budded. And when they looked down upon that ark and they looked down upon that table of testimony, they were looking down at everything that represented the wrath and the judgment of God against men because of their sin and their unbrokenness. And their brokenness.
Do you remember the first time we were introduced to those cherubs? The first time we're introduced to those cherubs is in the book of Genesis. When God in mercy and in grace drove Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they would not live in that garden forever in that eternal sinful state and that they would not eat of the tree of life and stay forever in their lost condition. He drove them out. And when God drove them out, he put two cherubs at the gate, at Eden's gate, with a flaming sword protecting that garden, lest any man would ever get in and eat of the tree of life. That's the first time we see them. And then God tells Moses, you put those two cherubs on that mercy seat. And then one time a year, on the, Holy of, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. He'll take the blood of that goat, and he'll take the blood of that goat, and he'll dip it on that mercy seat seven times. And when he dips the goat of that, that blood on that mercy seat seven times, an atonement, a propitiation, an appeasement will be made for the sins of the people for that year previous. There'll be propitiation made. And that's exactly what happened. But those things should only serve as a shadow of good things to come because they could never make the comers perfect. They could never eternally atone for sins. They had to do that every year. Daily, they made sacrifices one time a year, year after year after year. They made atonement for sins, but those sins can, those, that atonement can never take away sins. But under the new covenant, we have a better propitiation. My little children, these things I write on you that you sin not. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. We've been justified freely through his blood, through the redemption of Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, to declare, I say, the righteousness of God. He is our propitiation. And y'all, y'all do know that words in the Bible have cousins. There's a lot of cousins that word propitiation. And the word justification is one of them. We have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when those cherubs guarded that Garden of Eden, that, that nobody could get to the tree of life. Brother Kenny Smith, when we could not get to the tree of life, do you know what the tree of life did? He came to us. He walked right past those cherubs because he had no sin. He walked right out into this world and he had no sin. He went to Calvary and he died on my behalf and he had no sin. But God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. So there is justification in this thing. Now a lot justified. Now wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be an awesome truth that all of your sins have been taken care of and you return back to zero? Wouldn't it be great if you went to your bank tomorrow, those of you who have a mortgage, and wouldn't it be great tomorrow if you went to the bank and uh, you found out that somebody done come along and paid your mortgage off? You were $200,000 in debt and somebody came along and paid that $200,000 and has brought your balance to zero. You know what you're doing on the way home? You'd say, thank you, Jesus, for whoever that was. I, I just thank you so much that you got me back. I'm out of debt, and I don't have any debt. But that's not justified. It's more than that. 
I'm going to pick on myself this morning. Let's suppose I go, I don't, I don't ever use an ATM. I don't ever use an ATM that I know of. I've never have been to an ATM, got money out. But let's suppose I go to, go to the ATM tomorrow, put my little card in there and, and go to withdraw some money. And there's $5 million in my account. My first reaction is going to be, hallelujah, there's $5 million in my account. But after I settle down, I'm going to have to tell myself, you need to investigate this matter. And let's suppose I go into my bank, People's Bank over here in Boaz, and I tell them, there's five, it's showing I got $5 million in my account. And they say, yeah, that's right, Kevin. That is legit. There was a guy that came by yesterday, and just out of the generosity of his heart, he put $5 million in your account. It's legit. You got $5 million. And I call my wife. And I tell her, Jane Ellen, you ain't going to believe this, baby, but somebody's put $5 million in our account. I promise you, she's not going to have to come up here and have a course with Brother Steve on how to spend money. (laughs) Not going to do it. The natural inclination of anybody that finds out they've got $5 million that they didn't have yesterday is going to be, I got to spend some money. Did you know that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ? God has not just eliminated the debt we had. God has not just abolished all that we owed him. But God has placed on the account of Kevin Jerry Brooks the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why he lived. Somebody says, why did he have to come to be born? Why did he live for 33 and a half years, 30 plus years on this earth? We needed something to put on our account. And every step he took, every word he said, every deed he done, everything that Christ did while he was here, he was racking up an account for me. And when he died on Calvary, resurrected on the third day, God justified me. Somebody says, how do you get people to work, preacher? You preach to them what Christ has done for them. And when it dawns on you how much God has done for you in Christ, nobody's going to have to give a seminar. Nobody's going to have to teach you a class. The natural inclination of your heart is I've got to spend, I've got to do, I've got to work because of what God has done for me in Christ. He's propitiated us. He's appeased the wrath of God. Work of magnification. Joshua 4, Joshua 4, verse number 14. Look at it. Joshua 4, 14. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel. He magnified him. He made him big. Can I say to you this morning that God has made Christ big? He's magnified him. He's exalted him. He's glorified him. As a matter of fact, he's exalted him so high that Paul said in Philippians that he's exalted him so high, he's given him a name that is above every name. That his name every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul took it a step further and said he just hadn't exalted him to that place. He's exalted him higher than that. Paul said he's exalted him so high, he quoted Isaiah in Romans chapter 14, that not, not only should every, should every knee bow, but every knee shall bow and shall confess. And God has magnified Joshua. Shadows that point to Jesus. But there are not only shadows that point to Jesus, but there are stones 
that testify of Jordan's crossing. When I think about those stones, Brother Steve, and, and just contemplate those stones, stones of testimony, there were three things that God kind of showed me. Number one, these stones that were erected as a memorial at Gilgal served as a testimony of the people that God had delivered. Did y'all notice how many times it says that in this chapter? In Joshua chapter 4, verse 1, the people. In Joshua chapter 4, verse 10, the people. Joshua chapter 4, verse 11, the people. Joshua chapter 4, verse 19, the people. Joshua chapter 4, verse 24, the people. Isn't that amazing? These stones were to serve as a testimony to the people that God had delivered. God is doing everything he does in the name of Jesus, but at the same time, everything that God is doing, he's doing in and through people. Me and you. Hallelujah for what God has done in Christ. Praise be to Jesus for what he's done for me on the cross. But right now in 2023, God is graciously inviting people to come along and go with him. To come along and go with him to the promised land. You see, because God did not just simply bring people out of Egypt. He didn't just bring them out. He wanted to bring them in to the land of Canaan. Can I say to First Baptist Church this morning, God has a desire in his heart for people at First Baptist Church of Boaz to be brought into the land of promise. And he is graciously inviting you to participate in what he's doing. Isn't that a blessing? That God is going to look at somebody like you and invite you to participate in what he's doing? As a matter of fact, the two, God has willed that the two be intertwined. Could God have done it another way? Yeah, sure he could. But if people are going to be saved, you know how they're going to be saved? Men are going to preach and men are going to pray. God intertwined that. Could he have done it another way? Absolutely. But God has ordained that in the work of the church, if anybody's going to come to Christ, there's going to have to be somebody preach and somebody's got to be back there praying for it to happen. That's just the way it works. He is the head and we are the body. And I don't know about y'all. I, I don't want to see a head around here doing something without a body and I don't want to see a body around here doing something without a head. That... <laughs> But everything the head's going to do, it needs the body to perform the function to do it. And that's the way God has ordained it in the body of Christ. He is the head and we're his body. We're the people that he's delivered. I need the Red Sea to open. Well, Moses, lift up your rod. I need Goliath to be killed. Well, David, get your sling. I need Lazarus to be raised. Well, somebody roll the stone away. They're not over here in Joshua chapter 4. Can anybody, can anybody understand that when you read Joshua chapter 4, it would have been a whole different chapter had those priests been standing there at the bank of the river just waiting on God to do something. Did you know one day we're going to find out why we've been sitting around waiting on God to do something? God's been sitting around waiting on us to do something. 
If God is prompting in your heart to do something in the body of First Baptist Church in Boaz in this ministry, you need to be about the business of doing it. And you can guarantee yourself if God is prompting you to do something, God is wanting to do something too. It's people. But it's not just a testimony of the people that God delivered. It is a testimony of the power that he demonstrated. I don't know if y'all have a vision in your mind of what's going on here, but all through my childhood when I thought about the Red Sea and I thought about Jordan River, I always thought in my mind, Brother Kenny, I always thought these people are walking through and there's a wall of water over here and there's a wall of water over here and there's a narrow passageway they're going through. And in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, they're, they're walking across the Red Sea and the Jordan River, scared to death that wall's going to cave in on them. But that is not the case. God dried up the Jordan River from Jericho to the city of Adam. You know how long that is? 17.5 miles on dry ground. And I looked up that word dry ground this week. It means bone dry ground. Those people walked across on a 17.5 mile gulf that God spanned and he opened up those waters that they might go through. You might as well put over Joshua chapter 4, the mighty power of God. Can anybody else but me testify this morning that we have a mighty God? He's powerful. He'll do things you never thought he could do. There may be somebody here this morning, you may say, Preacher, you just don't know my life. I'm at the bottom. You just don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But I know what he's done. You may say, preacher, you don't know what my need is. You don't know how, how large my deficiency is. You don't know how big my need is. I don't know what your need is, but I know what he has. I know what he can do. He's a mighty God. Can I be really transparent with y'all this morning for just a minute? I hesitate to share this, but I just feel like I got to. Today is the third time that I have preached in a pulpit on Sunday morning in almost six years. In 2017, um, 2017, a lot of things were going on in my life and a lot of things were happening. And I just said, I quit. I'm not going to quit going to church. I'm not going to quit serving the Lord, but... Just, I'm just not going to preach anymore. Where's, where's Robert Ross? Robert, right there, Robert. And uh, in the past year of my life, God has just kind of rejuvenated some of that in me and has led me on a different path. Brother Robert Rosser, his dad. Did anybody know Ralph Rosser? If you, if you knew Ralph Rosser, did anybody ever know Ralph Rosser from Sardis? Anybody ever know Ralph Rosser from Sardis? Uh, Robert's dad, Ralph, meant the world to me. When I first started preaching, and especially when I first started, when I took my first pastorate, uh, Ralph has been an influence on my family at Sardis for generations back, generation before me. He, he was our neighbor. They lived down the road from us. 
And Brother Ralph, when he found out I was called to preach, he, would, he was walking. He would walk at the time. Me and Jan lived in a little mobile home down on Rossford Boulevard. And he would walk down. He would, he would talk to me. And he would tell me things and share with me things. And just, I got real close to Brother Ralph and just told me things back then, man, that just were just right now look back and think about how profound they were. I remember, I remember your dad, Brother Robert, used to tell me, said, said Brother Kevin, where you, wherever you go now, stay sweet. And I thought, stay sweet? What in the world is he talking about? Well, after pastoring three churches for 24 years, I understood what he was talking about. That's easier said than done, you know? But he told me a lot of good things. And I wrote down some of those things. One thing Brother Ralph told me is I remember him telling me, he said, Brother Kevin said, in my preaching life, there's been a lot of times I got in my car and I would be on the way home and I would tell God, I'd say, God, I quit. And he said, before I got home in my driveway, he said, God would have already told me, that's all right, Ralph, you go ahead and quit. But you didn't know. I'm not going to quit on you. This week, uh, one of my prized possessions, Brother Robert, one of my prized possessions I have is I've got a Rubbermaid container at home of notebooks upon notebooks and pages upon pages of handwritten notes from Ralph Rosser that Robert gave to me. I've got those, Robert prize possession. I got them out this week. They were in my shed. They were in a Rubbermaid seal container. They've been in that shed for six years. I got them out this week and un- un- uncovered them, got to looking through them. And this is a God's honest truth. When I opened up that Rubbermaid container this week, Brother Robert, the first paper I pulled out was this paper I got in my hand. I was going to go through them and organize them. It's the first paper, a little slip of paper, got some handwritten notes on it. The very first line on that, on that picture, on this, on this piece of paper says, a picture, the River Jordan. That's what it says. Now, y'all may not think a lot of that. But when I put my hands on that piece of paper, I saw the mighty power of God. That you may quit on him, but he will never ever, ever, ever quit on you. He's a powerful God that can able, able to do things that mean you could not imagine. In closing this morning, testimony of the power that was demonstrated, but a testimony of the praise that was due. The hand of God is mighty. That all the people of the land, verse 24, might know the hand of God is mighty and that they might fear the Lord God. I looked up that word fear, and I know that word fear, it, it means to be terrified. It does. But that word fear also carries the idea of, of being in astonishment of, being in awe of. God says, Joshua, set up these stones. When your children come and they ask what these stones mean, you tell them that God departed the Jordan River that the people of God were able to walk through on dry ground, that everybody may know that the hand of God is mighty and that everybody may stand in astonishment of God. Remembering. I wrote down this week, why was there even a, a memorial necessary? 
He just parted the Jordan River 17.5 miles and 3 million plus Jews walked across on dry ground. Why in the world was there even a memorial necessary? It seems to me like you're not going to forget this event. But isn't that human nature? We just forget, don't we? And so God said, set up a memorial. Memory. Is anybody else me intrigued by memory? I'm intrigued by memory. I'm, I'm just uh, mystified by it. Um, why can you remember some things you want to forget? Why can you not forget some things you'd like to not remember some things you want to? Memory is just a, it's, it's a mystery to me. And I've been having some sinus issues all week. And one morning I woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning just wide awake. And I just started preaching this sermon to myself. And I got to this point in the sermon, Brother Steve, and God gave me a challenge. He said, Kevin, I want you to think back as far as you can think back in your memory. So I laid there in the bed at 3 o'clock that morning, and I thought back. And I I closed my eyes, and I, I thought back as far as I could think back. And my first memory I could come up with, this is it, God's honest truth. I'm five years old. I've got a first cousin that is going to kindergarten at Miss Sue Smith's kindergarten on Bethsaida Road. And I'm five years old. I'm with my grandmother, Brooks. I'm in the back seat. David's in the front seat. And we're at Sue Smith's kindergarten. And she's dropping off David to kindergarten. And my mom and daddy didn't send me to kindergarten. And I'm in the back seat of my grandmother Brooks's car, and I can remember David getting out of that car, and I can see the, the playground next to Miss Sue's house, and I can see David run off, and I can see him playing with all those kids. And my first thought was, is I've got to call my therapist. I have discovered Plymouth Rock of the crazy world that is Kevin Brooks. I'm psychologically stuck in the back seat of my mama Brooks's car, and I just want to go to the playground. And my mama's here. Blame her. She didn't see me to kindergarten. but there I am but here's what God showed me my mama Brooks could have drove about another mile down the road from Miss Sue Smith because she could have turned left on Bruce Road she could have turned right into Reason Acres and on Floyd Avenue there was a one and a half year old little girl over there named Jane Ellen Whitmire It was in 1977. And uh, she was over there, and I was at my mama Brooks's car. And God said, okay, I want you to think there. Now come here where you're at. From 1977 to here at First Baptist Church in Boaz, Alabama. Y'all know know what I think about when I think about those 46 years? I stand back in fear of God in astonishment of what he has done in my life. I have another memory. My mother's here. My Papa Brooks. My Mama Brooks. My Papa Brooks lived right up from us. And my Papa Brooks had a little, little concrete stairway going into his house in his carport. And when we'd go there when I was a kid... Papa would be sitting in a chair and he'd have one of them little in his hand, one of them little rubber change containers. It looked like a football. You know what I'm talking about? And you'd squeeze that thing and you could open it up. And I'd walk up and he'd squeeze that thing, Brother Scotty, and he'd give me a quarter out of that thing when I come up. And I can hear my mama nudge me. And when Papa would give me that quarter, I can hear my mama nudge me and I can hear her say, What do you say? And I knew what she meant. I said, 
Thank you, Papa. There's some of you there this morning, you look back in the rearview mirror of your life and you can see where you were in a season of your life. You were doing the best you could to destroy yourself. There was addiction, there was drugs, there was alcohol, there was all kinds of things going on in your life and you were trying your best to destroy your life and yet here you are. What do you say? Thank you. There are some of you this morning, you look back in the rearview mirror of your life and you don't see much that God delivered you from in addiction and drugs and alcohol, but I can tell you this, God kept you from it. What do you say? Thank you. There are some of you this morning that look back in your life and you raise your kids and you wondered how in the world are the bills going to be paid? How in the world is there going to be food put on my table? And somehow God made a way where there was no way. What do you say? Thank you. Some of you here this morning look back in your life and God has provided for you every day. You've never worried about where a meal came from. You've never worried about how the power bill was going to get paid. What do you say? Thank you. I looked up. This is me. I looked up the word ovation this week. You know what the word ovation means? It means a sustained and extended and an enthusiastic Expression of gratitude, especially by applause. When I think about the last 46 years of my life, I want to give God an ovation. But I don't want to just give him an ovation. I want to give him a standing ovation. Does anybody else with me feel like giving God an ovation? Anybody feel like giving him a standing ovation for what God has done for you in your life? And as we give God an ovation, you know what we do when we really want to do something? Encore, Lord! Encore! Do it again at First Baptist Church of Boaz! Do it again in my life! Do it again right here in Boaz! Encore! Encore! And he'll do it again. And he's worthy of our praise. They're going to come and we're going to sing. I preached way too long. This morning, you know the need of your heart. Our passion is when you obey the Lord this morning as we close the service.